think we could have had Jesse up here too doing the motions. For those of you who watched the funeral of former U.S. President George H.W. Bush in 2018, as I did. The opening hymn was a song written by Henry Francis Light titled, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. The text of that song is drawn actually from Psalm 103. Interestingly, it may be one of the few songs that was sung at both a funeral and a wedding because it was also used in the 1947 royal wedding of Queen Elizabeth. There's a fifth stanza not often seen or heard 
that begins like this. Frail as summer's flower we flourish, blows the wind, and it is gone. Now here's my question. How do we, how do we as humans, faced with really such a a flimsy nature, how do we ever find confidence? You see, the next two lines of the song begin to tell us. It goes on to say, But while mortals rise and perish, God endures unchanging one. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise the High Eternal One. You see, light is right. As humans, we are like grass and flowers that that have their day and then they're gone. James, in chapter 4, verse 14 says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It's kind of the image that we're used to in the bathroom when you've taken a nice hot shower and you come out and there's that mist that appears for a time on the the mirror. You see, in contrast, the Word of God is living and abiding. And that's how the first chapter of 1 Peter closes in verse 25. But the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. The good news. And what is the good news? And that's where we're going to focus a little bit this morning. Our text comes from the last half of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 25. And you can read with me if you want. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. May God add His blessing to our reading of this Word together this morning. When thinking about our place in the big picture, in the overarching scheme of all things, how do you view yourself? 
a speck of dust in an immense universe? Maybe as an advanced species of animal life on a, on a doomed planet? Paul writes to the Christians at Philippi, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we uh, looked at two of the imperatives, two of the commands. I, I just, I love the Greek language because you can look at a word and know whether it's the subject, the object, the, a command, just by the way the ending of the word is in the language itself. And Peter uses three commands in these verses of, in chapter 1. The first two we saw were, first of all, to set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He literally commands us. You don't set your hope on earthly things. Don't set your hope on your abilities. Don't set your hope on finances. I've often told students through the years when I was teaching and at camp, I've often said the one thing that nobody can ever take away from you is what you put inside your head. Everything else can be gone in an instant. And that's why Peter says to us, you set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That knowledge that not because of what we can do, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ did. What God has done in the plan of salvation. We can know that we have hope. We're going to be saved. We're going to have abundant eternal life. The second command that He gave us was one that it's really not as difficult as it seems I'm not saying it's easy, but the second one he gave us was to be holy. In other words, set yourself apart. Be willing to be different. That's what the word holy means. And now today, I told you I was going to save the third imperative or command for today. The third one is to conduct yourselves with fear knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. You know, because we live on this planet, but, as Peter said, we are resident aliens, our citizenship is in heaven, sometimes we just need to sing out again like we used to sing years ago. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid out somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't get along in this world anymore. And then the next line, Oh Lord, you know, I, I've got no friend like you. There we go. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? We need to live in such a way that we realize that not everybody on this old planet's going to accept us, but we've got to behave 
with a little bit of fear. But notice that it's a healthy fear. We're to live in fear as and when we call on God as our Father. But notice also that Peter wants us to remember that God, as opposed to us as human fathers, God makes His judgments impartially according to each one's deeds. In other words, we're going to be judged on the basis of what we've done. We're not going to get in trouble for what somebody else has done. We're not going to get in trouble beyond what we've done and not less than what we've done. We're going to be judged on what we've done. So we're to live and conduct ourselves with a little bit of fear. You don't have to raise your hands, but I can tell by the looks on your faces how many of you at one point in your life said, you wait till your father gets home. Those were the words I hated for my mom to say. Because there was a sense in which I wasn't shaking fear, but I had a sense of awe and respect for my father. And I knew his discipline. In the letter to the Hebrews, the writer quotes actually from the Old Testament, from Psalm chapter 3, and says, you've got to remember what it says in the Old Testament. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves him who He loves as a father the son in whom He delights. I know that it didn't seem right, but then I experienced it. I remember my mom and dad saying to me when they would discipline me in some way, this hurts us worse than it hurts you. And I remember hearing that and saying, "Ah, well, you're not feeling what I'm feeling back here then. But as I became a parent, and I had to say to my kids, no. Probably the hardest one was not even a spanking. Part of probably the hardest one was when Jesse and I said to our son when he had just turned 18, if that's how you are going to choose to live, that's your choice. But you have to have a different address after your name. You can't behave like that and live like that in our house. But we didn't do that out of a desire to get rid of him. We did that because we loved him and hoped that he would change his behavior. And we still daily pray and hope for that. You see, God loves us. And God, in His love, disciplines us. I shared with you the story of the young girl that said at that time, my mother loves my sister. She disciplines her. If I'd have been her, she'd have disciplined me when I got home instead of just saying, can't we be friends? There is a sense in which we expect that. Young people expect that. And we need to know that that is required of us from God. 
I know a young man right now who is struggling with the God of the Old Testament. The what seems like the harshness, the the devoting to destruction, large groups of people. But a part of love is commitment. Commitment to righteousness. A commitment to justice. We have gotten too caught up in this day in an idea of love that is all about warm and fuzzies. One of the most loving things that you can do for people is say, no, that's not acceptable. That's why he stresses here in this letter. And he stresses it for a reason. We need to be living our lives with a constant reminder that we are the dwelling place of God. Our body is the temple of God. So whether home or abroad, we need to to remember that we have a Heavenly Father who wants to have fellowship with us, who wants to have communion with us, and He's very specific as to where He wants to live. We've got to make sure that His dwelling place is prepared. And then starting in verse 20, Peter points out that Jesus, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, He was revealed in the last times for, He says, our sake. That is, for those who have chosen to be believers in God. And He says, you're to do that so that your faith and hope are in God. I want to touch on one point here quickly before I move on. I have people all the time who will come to me and ask me, Preacher, Pastor, Chauncey, do you think we're living in the last days? And I say, absolutely. But probably not as you are thinking when you ask me the question. Biblically speaking, The last times, the last days, are from the first leaving of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, until the day He returns again. Acts chapter 2. Peter's getting ready to give his sermon and he says, hey, these guys aren't drunk. This is a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And you know how Joel chapter 2 begins? And in the last days. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In times past, in many different ways, God revealed Himself. But in these last days. Jude, verses 18. He says... This is what we were told was going to happen in the last days. What's going on? We're living in the last days. And believe me, nothing has to happen to Israel. Nothing has to happen anywhere else for Christ to come back. He can come back right now. And my prayer is, Lord Jesus, come. Just like Revelation ends. 
We're living in the last days. And because of that, we need to be living like we are living in the last days. We need to be living as believers in God. You say, well, obviously I'm a believer or I wouldn't be here. Well, the question really isn't, are you a believer? The question is, are you living as a believer? You know, there are two words that we use for one Greek word. The Greek word is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, if you transliterate it, or pistuo, P-I-S-T-E-U-W in the verb form. One word, we, we translate it and talk about it as belief, and we talk about it as believe. But most of the time, when we talk about that word, when we see it in the Scriptures, when we see the word faith, we think of something that we have in our heads. Something that we can conceptually believe in. Oh yeah, I can affirm that's true. But that's not how people in biblical times understood it. In fact, there's a really neat, interesting uh, historical document concerning the life of a Jewish general by the name of Josephus. And in the story, Josephus supposedly is being considered as a traitor uh, because he is now writing a book for the Roman army in terms of the history of the Jews. And so some really zealous Jewish people go to try to kidnap him. And they surround him. And one of the things that's said is, you need to repent and believe in me. Sounds very familiar. Sounds like what we hear in Acts 2.38. But what he's talking about and how they understood the word is repent, change your lives, Change your loyalty and be loyal to me. It's about loyalty. It's not about what we believe in our heads. Listen to me, and this hurts to say. There are a lot of people that I know that are family members, that are friends, who believe in their head that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But according to my understanding of God's Word, the Bible... They're going to be those who Jesus said, I know you prophesied in my name. I know you say you know me. But depart from me, for I've never known you. Because they're not living the Christian life. That's what it means to believe in God. Faith always, always presumes that there will be faithfulness. And that's why Peter could continue in verse 22 by speaking of our work, which is the purification of our souls. It's sanctification. Our work of being obedient to the truth. And this isn't doing works in order to be saved. This is being obedient because we have been brought to the position of being born again. That's what he talks about in this first chapter. Because you've been born again. And you know what? It doesn't really matter what we think. I hear people all the time say, well, I know the Bible says, but I think. And I say, oh, well, doesn't matter to me what you think. As long as you know what the Bible says. Or I'll hear people say, well, 
I it certainly I know what the Bible says, but you know I feel. You ever heard somebody say that? And again, it doesn't really matter what we feel. I told a young girl one time that told me that she knew the relationship she was in was wrong and what they were doing was wrong according to the Bible. But she believed and felt that this was what God wanted her to do. And she really felt something in her gut. And I said to her, I'm not being crazy, sarcastic, or joking with you, but if you're feeling that in your gut, you probably need to think about what you ate for supper last night. Because that feeling in your gut has nothing to do with God's Word. Notice how Peter refers to the Bible, to Scripture. He says it's the living and abiding Word of God. It's not that the Bible is an old book that's no longer relevant. The problem, and I love the words of the great English journalist and philosopher and, and lay theologian, G.K. Chesterton. Just, I love to read his works. They're a little heavy and a little thick at times, but G.K. Chesterton one time said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. We haven't really lived the Christian life. And we cannot expect the world to think that we're anything other than just another social club if we don't start living the truth that we say we believe. The Gospel message, which Peter reminds us, by quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, is that even though our physical, even though our human life on earth is fleeting, though we are like grass and flowers that quickly fail, the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news. This is the good news that should encourage us and also should enable us to love others as Christ loved us. How did He do that? By sacrificing. By serving. By not demanding to be served. By not opening His mouth when accusations were made against Him. The only conclusion that we should come to by seeing these words of of Peter again, the only conclusion we should come to is that we need to be loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. I don't love my neighbor because my neighbor can offer this or that. I don't love my family because they're family. I love because God has called me to love. The Bible has told me that God is love. The Bible has told me that Jesus has demonstrated His love. And that while you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me tell you something. I would be thrilled if next Sunday morning this room was absolutely filled And it was filled 
not only with us, but filled with a bunch of kids that had green, orange, purple, blue hair, whatever, filled with people that had dirty clothes on because they were homeless, filled with Hispanics and blacks, I would be thrilled that the room was filled with people who were seeking the love of God. Because God will do the cleaning up. We don't have to say you need to get cleaned up and come to church. No, we need to say you need to come to church and let God work in your lives. And that's what Peter is saying in chapter 1. And if we don't like it, the problem's with us, not with God's Word. The problem is we haven't made ourselves relevant to God's Word. I'm going to close with a story about my dad. (coughs) My dad went to a board meeting one night. And one of the board members said, we have a problem. My dad said, oh, what's the problem? He said, the kids are writing on the walls. My dad said, it's not wiping off? Show me what you're talking about. Because they had paid the extra money to have the paint that was very wipeable and washable. He said, show me what you're talking about. Went down and most of it wiped off, but there were a couple marks left. And the guy said, see, that's not even wiping off. Dad said, but you know what? I'll bet you there's some more of that paint in the closet. And the guy said, well, we need to take care of the problem. And just like that, Dad said, okay, we'll take care of the problem. Let's go back to the room. They went back into the room. The board all sat down. And Dad said, I think it was Ray. I think his name was Ray Ford, actually. He said, Ray here's pointed out a problem. We got down the hall with the rooms with the kids marking on the walls, and uh, it's causing a problem. He said, So I got a solution to the problem. We're just not going to let any more kids in the building, okay? And Ray looked up and said, That was rather silly of me, wasn't it? Because why are we here? What's this building all about? Isn't it about bringing in the lost that are all around us so that they can come to know Jesus Christ as their loving Lord and Savior? I was talking to a lady um, that drew our blood. That's who it was, wasn't it? She saw my wife's tattoos. My wife went out and I came in and she and I started talking and I said, yeah, I'm a preacher. And she said, you're a preacher? She said, well, praise the Lord, my husband's a preacher. Just a minute. She went out and got my wife. I thought, oh no, I'm in trouble for bringing a preacher. She went out and got Jesse and brought her in. And she said, you know what? 
My husband really had a problem with tattoos and I wanted a tattoo. And we talked about it. And we went searching the Scriptures. And the only place we found where it says anything about tattoos is in the Old Testament. And in that passage, correct me if I'm wrong, and I said, I'll tell you about the passage. I said, it's talking about getting yourself marked for a foreign God. Not marking yourself in any way for another God, a foreign God. That's what it's about. And she said, amen, that's what we came to. She said, now, he's not ready to get a tattoo, but he gave me his blessings on me getting one. And I said to her, I said, well, I told you I'm the preacher, and I lifted up my sleeve. And I said, I got tattoos on both arms. And I said, you know what? I know that there's probably somebody out there that's going to say, oh, that's horrible. But listen to me. If we're worried about tattoos, if we're worried about the length of somebody's hair, if we're worried about somebody's skin color, if we're worried about any of that stuff, we have lost touch with the reality of God's Word. And we need to make ourselves relevant to it. Let's pray.